surveying the Old Testament. Now, to get the most out of it, you need to be reading along as best you can. And for this class, you could just scan sections of the Bible just to get a context of what we're talking about before you come to class. So today's Ruth. Next week, we'll do 1 Samuel, Lord willing. Just scan through 1 Samuel. Look at the chapter headings. Look at what's going on in the, in the storyline. Of course, in your normal Bible reading, slow down. Read the Bible a little more thoroughly. But even then, in your normal everyday Bible reading, you're probably not getting out Bible dictionaries and looking up and compiling notes. So there's different levels of study that we can do. Well, let me pray. We'll finish uh, Judges, and then we'll go into Ruth. Everybody loves Ruth. Love story in the Bible, right, Frank? You're into romantic biblical books? You should be. We all should be, right? Okay, well, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us here, putting us in this place to study your word. Help us to take this information in, uh, not so we can pat ourselves on the back, Lord, but so that we can know you better, so that we can understand who you are. That's why you've given us your word, so that we might know the God we worship. And so help us to do that. Bless us as we do that. Amen. All right, we are in the book of Judges. Who remembers the theme for Judges? It's test time, quiz time. The theme for Judges. Haley, you remember the theme for Judges? Is Judges a happy, happy, joy, joy book? No. What is it about? Periods of God's redemption and restoration. A cycle, right? A cycle. So disobedience and defeat, and then God will redeem them. Over and over this happens. Over and over this happens. It's sort of like a picture of the Christian life. That's not why it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible to describe Israel's history. But one of the lessons we can learn is even people who have been saved by God physically, They were saved out of Egypt. But even spiritually saved can stumble back into sin and call out for God to save them from their stupidity, from their sinfulness, and constantly go through this cycle. Then forget about God. Stumble back again. So we went through uh, the outline. We looked at the dates there, key chapters, key passages, different uh, judges. We were working on some of these interpretive issues. And there was the second one, uh, we looked at a table of the judges. Where's Shamgar from? What tribe is Shamgar from? Chris. Since you saw us in the parade last night and you just waved instead of ju- jumped on the parade trailer, I'm going to ask you all the questions. Where's Shamgar from? Nobody knows. Could have been a Gentile. We don't know. He is the only judge that's not referenced as far as his tribe. What's a judge? It's the guy with a gavel, right, who sits behind a podium and hits it. No, a judge is a ruler of a tribal area. Not the whole nation. That's called the king. Just an area. Usually just one tribe. So we have Othniel over Judah. Samson, Dan. Now, some tribes in that area might gather together to fight under that judge. But it's a ruler. And, of course, he would hear cases if somebody brought cases. But I don't think Samson was sitting around waiting for people to bring him court cases and making decisions on that. He may have done that a few times, but he was mostly a military leader. Deborah, she sat under a tree and and people came to her to hear court cases. A little more maybe than Samson. But we're not told a lot of what they did on an everyday basis. We just know that they were leaders uh, who went out and led the troops. Eli and Samuel being the last two judges, they're going to come up in 1 Samuel. Okay, so we come to this last one. And this is how corrupt things have gotten in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's sort of the theme verse of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. They just did whatever they want. Levites had concubines. When they got raped and killed, they chopped them up and sent them out to all the tribes in Israel. So now we come to this other disturbing story. We're in Judges 11.29, Jephthah's vow. Judges 11.29, Jephthah was a judge, and he's going to fight. He's a little bit worried. It says, now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. The Holy Spirit is upon him, giving him power, enabling him, so that he passed. The Holy Spirit came upon him, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. From Mizpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, if you'll win the battle for me, God, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Whatever comes out the door, 
I vow, God, to give it to you in such a way that I'm going to burn it on the altar. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them. The Lord gave them into his hand. God gave them into his hand. Jephthah and the Israelites won the battle. And then uh, God struck them with a very great slaughter from Aor to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities. 20 cities that he went and captured. This was a great victory. And as far as Abel Karimim, so the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. Ammon had been, going back to this chart here, uh, Jephthah, you see him. Let me draw here for you. Jephthah's here. They had 18 years of oppression by the Ammonites. Coming in, Ammonites would take what they wanted. Ammonites would take the, the men and women as slaves, slaughter who they wanted. 18 years, and God raises up Jephthah. Jephthah goes into battle. He wins this great victory. He completely subdues the Ammonites. He takes 20 cities, pretty much all of the Ammonite territory. Now he's going to go home. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. What did he vow? First thing that comes out my door, I'm going to offer it up as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord, a burnt offering to the Lord. First thing that come out of his door, his daughter. What was he thinking? Some people would say, well, the animals could be inside of a house, a part of the house and, and come out in the morning. That's true. Still, I don't, I don't know what he was thinking. Um, most vows in the Bible are done rashly. They're done too quickly. We see that same thing with Saul. Whoever eats honey this day will, will certainly die. Well, who ate honey? His son, right? Saul's son. Jonathan eats honey. And so there's that vow that's, that's done in, in a rash way. And, and here's the same. Jephthah's just not being wise at all. Now, she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. So that's his only child. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter. You have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, I cannot take it back. Whose fault is it? He says it's her fault, right? That's like Adam. We always blame the woman. It's always her fault. When we can't get something done, it's her fault. So um, he blames his daughter. She had nothing to do with it. She's innocent on this matter. It's his fault, but he wants to get upset with her. Of course, he's, he's stricken. He's upset. And uh, so she says, listen to this. She says, my father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. That's a God-fearing young woman. That's a loyal daughter. Whatever it is, whatever it could be, just do it. Follow what you've promised to the Lord. She said uh, to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. So does she know what's about to happen? You've given your word to the Lord, do it. And then she says, let me go to the mountains with my friends for two months and celebrate the next two months. Um, weep over the fact that I never got married. I'm not going to have kids. Then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months. And she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So what's the problem? Well, did he really do it or not? Did he change his mind? This is not in the Bible. So there's two main views on this. One is that B would be that he did as he said, he did as he promised. The text indicates that that view would say the offering of Jephthah's daughter, her death. It leads to her death. The other view says can't be that way. Jephthah, after all, is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as one of the examples of the faith. The role of the faith, Hebrews 11. You guys know what I'm talking about? We've got Samson in there. We've got Jephthah in there. So they would say the perpetual virginity and tabernacle service is what's in view because of this discussion on virginity. So it's not really her death that was promised originally. It's just that he would sacrifice her up as an ongoing sacrifice, as a servant to God serving in the tabernacle. And they would go back to the, the promise, because the text clearly says that's what he promised to do, right? In verse 30, If you indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, 
and it shall be whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, and it shall be the Lord's. So proponents of view A would say, it's the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. They look at the word for burnt offering in Hebrew and says, well, it's really more of just a, a continual offering or sacrifice. So what are we going to choose? We're going to pick the easy answer. We're going to pick what we want. We're going to read something back into the text that's not there. We have to go with the text. I'm going to pick what the text says. And the text says he did it. What is it? How does it end? Verse 39, at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. What was the vow that he made? That he would offer up as a burnt offering. Does that mean he killed her? Does that mean, we don't know the details. The Bible doesn't give us the details. This is an example of how ungodly the people of Israel had gotten. God's Levites, those who are supposed to take care of the temple, are chopping up women and sending their body parts out. And one of the judges who's blessed of God and has the Spirit for a time, is offering up his daughter as a sacrifice. should be sobering. should be chilling. should show you how, how sinful a people can get. Again, we don't know the details. We don't know how much he participated. She thought it was going to happen. He had vowed that it would happen. And it says that he did as he had promised. So I have to go with the text, regardless of how difficult that makes the theology, Jephthah's theology. But it's not saying God approved it, just like Rahab's lie. God's not approving of it. But Jephthah would have thought that he had to complete his vow. And again, he's mentioned over in Hebrews 11 with this great role of the faith. So just like with Samson, that that challenges us. What are we going to do with that? Well, God would never let that happen. Well, God, God lets a lot of things happen with people so that they will learn lessons. Not sure what kind of physical punishment Jephthah received, nor is this an example that we should ever follow. But look how sinful things have become. So if I'm looking in, um, let me see in Hebrews 11, if I can find it real quick. 32, Frank says. Thank you, Frank. Uh, 32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon. I mean, this is a guy who doubted God. Barak, he was too wimpy to go fight. And so Deborah, a woman, had to basically be the general in his place. Samson, who slept around with Philistine women and married one when that's against the law of God. Jephthah, who offered up his daughter as a sacrifice. David, who committed adultery and killed a man. And then Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, and he goes on and on. They're examples of being faithful. Not a great list, right? Because there's no perfect people in the Bible but Jesus. He's the only one. Everyone else, what are they? Sinners. Remember Abraham? Lied. That's not my wife. Go ahead and take her. Go ahead, Pharaoh. Take. Go ahead, Abimelech. Take my wife. Commit adultery with her. That's, I, don't, I don't want to be in trouble. Scoundrel. Jacob? Scoundrel. Doesn't mean they weren't faithful in some ways. Doesn't mean they didn't have justification by faith. It just means that no one is perfect. And everyone sins. And even believers can do really... Really stupid stuff. Again, not an example. Uh, this is a, is a great sin, but he should have never made the vow in the first place. And we don't, on, ter- on interpretive issues like this, we don't get to pick what we would like to have happened. We have to go with what the text says. Text indicates B. That's, that's where we have, moving on from that sad note. Any questions on Judges? All right, the book of Ruth. A love story, but more than a love story. More than a love story. We often think of it just as a love story. But it teaches us about God. Every book of the Bible teaches us about God. It teaches us who God is and what He's doing to redeem His people. Every book of the Bible has that. So let's talk about Ruth. We get the name from both the Hebrew and the Septuagint, and Hebrew and the Greek. They both call it Ruth. So we've moved away from the first five books of the Bible where they just name the book. After the first word, I think I'm destined to always have either sound or screen problems here. It wants to come up. Did y'all see the purple come up? (laughs) There it is. I didn't do anything. I didn't even touch it yet, and it already came back. I'm not touching anything. Okay. 
Um, who, who wrote Ruth? Samuel would be my guess. Doesn't say. We don't know. Can't be, can't be dogmatic about it. But if Samuel uh, wrote Judges, which I think there's a real good likelihood, Ruth takes place in the time of Judges. It's a story about a specific family that takes place in the time of Judges. What's a theme? It's not a, really a, about the romance, about the marriage. It's about God. God being a sovereign redeemer. It's an example of God redeeming a woman. And eventually, we'll see in the purpose that uh, through his sovereignty, which is in a hidden way, he affected the birth of his king through the actions of his people. So let's look at those verses. 1-6, Ruth 1-6. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So we see two mentions of God, Yahweh's name, in Ruth. This is the first one. Naomi is going to go back to the land of Israel. She's going to go back to where she was from because God's visited his people. What's he done? He's, he's blessed them. He's given them food once again. There's no more famine. Now we get to the end of the book. So the book sort of opens with God doing something. We get to the end of the book, 4.13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her. The Lord enabled her to conceive. How did she conceive? The Lord enabled that. Now, the Lord enables all conception. But the, the writer here, maybe Samuel, the writer, is pointing out that God is specially blessing this line through Boaz and Ruth. And then she gave birth to a son, then the woman said to Naomi, and, and goes on. So at the very end, though, we see that if we look in verse 21, we see this little line here. To Salmon was born Boaz, to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. And that's where the book ends. So is it about Naomi? Is it about Ruth? Yes. Is it about David? Yes. But mostly about God sovereignly working all these things to bring these two people together, to have this child who would eventually lead to David and would eventually lead to the future David, Jesus. So Ruth is going to be mentioned in the New Testament in the line of Christ, one of only two women. And both the women are Gentiles. When did this happen? During the period of Judges? Probably the Midianite oppression in Judges. So we could narrow it even further down, 1126 to 1105. During the Midianite oppression, they leave, Naomi and her husband leave the land because of famine. They go to Moab. In the Hebrew Bible, it does not follow Judges. In the Hebrew Bible, it gets lumped in with what's called the writings. So they stick it between Proverbs and Song of Songs. They stick it in between a couple of Solomon's writings. And it's kind of interesting if you think about it, if you look over at Proverbs 31.10. So keep your finger in Ruth. We'll come back to that and look at 3.11. We'll go to Proverbs now. King Lemuel here is just a, a nickname. El means God, and I forget what Lemu means, but uh, I think the, there's only one king around this time. It's Solomon, so it's just a nickname for him. He writes about his things that his mother taught him. And uh, in verse 10, An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. I think the King James said far above rubies. So an excellent wife. Now look back at Ruth 3.11. Now you would finish Proverbs and go into Ruth. If you're reading during Jesus' day, you're reading the Bible. That's how it would go. And in 3.11, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Could also be a wife. Eventually she will be his wife. But that same Hebrew word is being used there, a woman of excellence. So it does sort of match up with the Proverbs 31 woman. There's sort of this myth that you can't find a Proverbs 31 woman. She's like the perfect woman. And guys just need to quit reading Proverbs 31 because they're never going to find that woman. Well, she's not perfect because there's no one perfect but Jesus. And this is uh, describing a woman in Proverbs 31. And we'll come to it when we get to Proverbs. But there are people in the Bible that, that do match that. It's not about perfection. It's about striving for godliness and the right things. And Ruth shows herself to be that in the book of Ruth.
So what's our outline? Let's go back now to the book of Ruth. Sort of scan through it. Chapter 1 is about Ruth returning. And really it's not even Ruth. It's, it's Naomi and her family. Ruth from Moab. Uh, chapter 1 verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. So there's our time span. When the judges were governing the land. That there was a famine. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Not the wisest thing to do, right? Why would you not want to go to Moab? What's in Moab? Other than Moabites who don't like Israelites. What else is in Moab? Pagan gods that uh, Moabites worshipped. God said, stay away from pagan gods. You know, sometimes we say, well, they had to go. Well, there was a lot of people that didn't go. Whatever reason, uh, the husband, Elimelech, went. It wasn't wise. And some, some even argue that it was against God's law. Uh, I, there's some arguments back and forth on that, but at the least it wasn't wise. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon, Chilon, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech died. She was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. Not good against the the law of God. They're not supposed to do that. They're not supposed to marry outside of Israel. What are they doing? Again, they reasoned, hey, we're stuck here. We need to get married before we get too old. Hey, here's some women. Let's go ahead and get married. Uh, so they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children. Who's the woman? Naomi. They were bereft of her two children and her husband. So there's the misfortune that happens. Uh, what's God going to do? They're going to come back to the land. And she arose in verse 6 with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. She had heard the Lord had visited his people. He had brought food back to the land. So she starts heading back and the daughters are trying to follow her. You probably heard this story, heard it preached. Um, the two daughter-in-laws are going to follow her. She says, go back. Why are you following me? I'm a woman of misery. I've been through all this. Look what the Lord has done to me. He's given me all this misery. You know, she says, just call me Mara. Uh, which means bitterness, misery. Why are you following me? And hey, Orpah says, you know, you got a point. I'm going back. I don't want to go with you anymore. So she goes back to Moab. What does Ruth say to Naomi? Look at verse 14. Uh, they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth's not letting go. And she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. This is Naomi. Go, go back to your people. Go back to your gods like she did. Return with her. Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Here it is. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She's heard about God. She probably has been converted before this. But if not, at least at this point, she has faith in God, the true God of the Bible. I'm following you, Naomi, and I'm following your God. Let's go. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord, this is God's personal covenant name, thus may Yahweh do to me, and worse, if anything but death departs, uh, parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. That's faithfulness. That's a changed heart. That's a woman who says, you know what, I'm going with my mother-in-law. You know, God, God has caused sovereignly things to happen in her life, and it looks really bad, but I'm going with her. I'm following her God too. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess. The, the writer wants us to see she's not of the nation Israel. She's not a Jew. She's a Moabitess. Her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Chapter 2, the reaping of Ruth. So there's harvest, there's reaping going on. There's fields being cut. And she goes to the field of Boaz. This is her mother-in-law's idea. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the family of Elimelech. Some, some people think maybe Naomi knew. Uh, that's probably right. If, if 
You know all of your cousins and second cousins and family members. You probably know whose fields they are, whose lands they are. Whether she knew or not, I, I lean towards she did. Uh, Naomi says, go, do it. And uh, they, they've got to eat. So she would follow along and pick up the scraps, basically. Pick up the scraps of the harvest, take it home, make some bread for them to eat. And it just happened. She just happened to come upon the field belonging to Boaz. Anytime you see in the Bible that something just happened, you need to think God's sovereignty. That's the way of the writer subtly saying God's sovereignty. Sometimes God's sovereignty is big and bold and clear. Other times, especially in Ruth, it'll just say things just happened that way. She just happened. Well, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as just random chance. Everything happens according to God's plan. So it's just it's kind of a, a fun little thing to see when we see it just happened. That's the way we talk, but God is doing this behind the scenes. His name's not mentioned in every verse and every chapter necessarily, but God is there. Just like in the book of Esther, God's name, we're going to find out, is not mentioned at all, but he is there in the book. Boaz finds out what's going on. He wants to help her out. And let's look at his reaction in 2.18. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. So she's coming back with some, some wheat. She, or barley, sorry. Is it the barley harvest? Yeah, barley harvest. So she comes back with barley. She's going to make some bread. And she also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today? And where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. And then she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I had worked today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Just happened, just happened in God's sovereignty and God's providence. And maybe uh, working through even Naomi that this got all set up nicely. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in the field. So it's a good thing. Go out with the other women that follow the man and pick up the scraps because he'll protect you. And these men are going to look after you. You don't want to go into a stranger's field. What are those workers going to end up uh, doing to a woman who's by herself, who's maybe caught in, in a bad position? Naomi okays this and continues to encourage her to go back. Now in chapter 3, my Bible entitles it, Boaz will redeem Ruth. I've given it just the request of Ruth here in chapter 3. Um, so she she goes out, she continues to gather in this, um, verse 6 in chapter 3, so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all her mother-in-law had commanded her. What did her mother-in-law tell her to do? Go lay down at his feet. Go lay down at his feet. Let's just read it, because it's going to be an interpretive issue in a little bit. Um, three one. my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? That's language for, I'm going to set you up. So you can get married. Uh, now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. He's going to be there sleeping. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go and uncover his feet. Lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. So she, she said to her, all that you say I will do. She goes down there. She lays at his feet. Um, and then verse 8, it happened. There it is again. Just happened. Just happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled. No, God caused that, is what the writer's saying. And he bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid. And uh, for you are a close relative. So she tells him, you're a relative of Naomi, essentially. And uh, go ahead and take me. Not in a sexual sense, I don't think. Some, some will argue that. But she's just saying, take me as your wife. Propose to me. This is a language we might use today. Hey, um, since you're here to take care of me and you see me in need, and I'm not married and you're not married, now, it wasn't complicated back then. Today we have to complicate it, and there's lots of different stages and steps and things. Hey, two unmarried people, they need to get married. There, there's a perfect match. 
And then he said, may you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men. So Boaz is a little bit older. We don't know if he's, I don't think he's been married before, uh, but he's a little bit older. We don't know why he hasn't married. And um, you haven't gone after the young men, Ruth. I'm glad that you, you've uh, considered me. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I'll do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. There it is again, a woman of excellence, just like we saw in Proverbs. And so she's already got a reputation. She's a Moabite woman from a Gentile pagan background. She's been saved by God. She's only been there a little while doing this, gathering up, taking care of her mother-in-law. But she's seen as a woman of God, a woman of excellence. Why? Well, because she's converted to Israel's God and she's taking care of her mother-in-law. She could have just said, Forget you, Naomi. Go go back to your home country and starve. I know you're too old to go out in the fields and walk around, but I'm going back home to my family. She didn't do that. And so Boaz knows about her. He's heard about her. And uh, he says, I'm a close relative. I'm going to do what needs to be done to redeem you as my wife. So chapter 4 is all about that. He has to go through a certain custom of the day. It has to do with going to the gate and uh, discussing with the elders of the city, and then requesting that he can marry her. But first, he's got to make sure that her closest relative doesn't want to marry her. He doesn't want to marry her because he's got other plans. And so Boaz ends up being able to marry her at the end of chapter 4. And then we see here um, at the end that she's going to be in the line of David, who's in the line of Christ, of course. And who's Boaz's, um, is it great-grandma? What do we find out about Rahab? You guys remember Rahab? Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. By the way, Ruth would have been Solomon's great-great-grandmother. Again, as he's writing Proverbs, is he thinking about his great-great-grandmother, what he's heard about her? Makes you wonder when he's writing Proverbs 31. Matthew chapter 1. Frank, you got this whole genealogy memorized? Verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. So that's his mom. Rahab's the mother of Boaz? And Boaz marries a, a Moabite? And then on down to Jesse, to King David, all the way down to Christ. So we have two women mentioned, both Gentiles, formerly pagans, converted. What, what a great and wonderful gospel that is. And we're going to see that in a sermon today that the Gentiles are brought in and saved under God's plan. And we get a little hint of that in Ruth. If you're a, an Old Testament Jew, you're reading Ruth, depending on how legalistic your heart is, you're probably thinking, Moabitess, what is she doing? The line of David? Oh, that, that, would, that would really get at some of the Pharisees, I think, of Jesus' day. I don't know how often they read Ruth. Key chapters, chapter 4, it all comes together. Boaz redeems Ruth and marries her. That's when we begin to really understand it's not about just a love story. It is a love story, but it's God sovereignly working things out. He's, he's teaching Israel a lesson. He's teaching Christians a lesson. He is a graceful and merciful God. Uh, 18 through 22, the genealogy from Perez to David. That's a key passage. It's, not, you know, it's a short book. I didn't list a lot here. Key people, Boaz, married Ruth, and then Ruth, Moabitess, who married uh, into the Messianic line. She's an important representative of Gentile inclusion. Gentile inclusion in the line of the Messiah. Who would have thought that? A helpful resource on Ruth is Daniel Block's book, Judges Ruth. I already recommended it when we went through Judges, but he also does well with Ruth. I think his strength is probably Judges uh, and Deuteronomy. He has commentary on that as well. But he does a great job on Ruth. New American Commentary, if you're looking for a set on the Old Testament, it's probably your best set right there, New American Commentary. You can get it on Logos. Where's Forrest? He slipped out here. You can get it on Logos or you can get a, a hardback set. Okay, we got four, I think, four interpretive problems. Is that right on your list? Four. So we've got plenty of time to look at these. Fun. Okay, the historicity of the book. Don't even have options down. Because there's not even an option on this. But everyone that is a more liberal scholar doubts that it actually happened. I'm not even sure why they doubt it. Because it's not like there's a lot of miracles happening here. It's just God's providence. 
You know, a miracle is God changing the way that natural things are set up. He's, he's, he's sort of breaking the laws of nature to accomplish something that's a sign. God's providence, though, is God working sort of behind the scenes, we might say, to make things happen according to his plan. This is a book about God's providence. But it just works out so nicely that I think liberal progressive scholars have a hard time believing it. And so they can't accept the fact that it's historical, that it actually happened. They think it's made up. And that's what you do when you don't like parts of the Bible. You just say they're made up, right? That part in First Timothy that talks about women not preaching. No, that's not Paul. That's made up. Uh, the part about creation in Genesis, the first 11 chapters, that's made up. That's just a story to tell people a myth about creation. Ruth, just a love story, like somebody would write a novel today. It's just made up. What do you guys think? What am I going to choose on this one? It is historical. If, if you believe the Bible, you think God's word is inerrant, you don't even get an option on this. It's in there for a reason. Everyone recognized it in the day of the Jews. Jesus recognized it. Everyone uh, understood this was God's word, and it actually happened. If you want to go to a story, uh, you could try maybe Song of Songs, but I think even that is an actual account of Solomon's first marriage. But it's more of a love story, more of a marriage, uh, people falling in love, getting married. Okay, the night at the threshing floor. What's the problem here? What are people, modern people, are going to see when they see this story? It's dark, right? A woman goes and lays at this guy's feet. She says, put your covering on me. You just, you just grow up in today's society and watch enough movies and see enough other things. And what do people think? Something sexual is going on there. Sexual overtone. It's not proper. It's not proper. So uh, let's read 3, 4, and 7. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. So this is Naomi telling her what to do. You're going to go. You're going to lay down where he lays down. You shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. This is kind of a more popular view these days. People are saying, hey, it's no big deal. Premarital sex, no big deal. I mean, Ruth, look what happened there. Everybody, the, the, these, a lot of these um, women who have a kind of a big following on Twitter and stuff, they'll say, it's not that big a deal, guys. I mean, look what happened with Ruth. Look what happened with Tamar. We're going to get, we'll look at Tamar in just a second. Um, Frank, go to Genesis 38, that passage there, 14 through 20. You're going to do a quick reading of that. Um, let's look at Ruth 3, 7. So she does exactly what Naomi says, Ruth, when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. You know, there's drinking involved, people say in modern, modern language. You know, there's drinking, sexual immorality, of course, is going to follow. He went to lie down at the end of the heap. She came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, when I see uncovered his feet, I take that literally. But the modern sort of um, sex-crazed mind sees uncover his feet, and they think uncovered the clothing, it took her clothing off. So, Or she took his clothing off. Uh, Frank, read uh, Tamar. So people who hold view A would say, this is the pattern that Tamar went through in Genesis. So she removed her widow's garments and herself and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not uh, been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to buy the road and said, Here now let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me? that you may come into me. He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give to you? And he said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose in the party and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So there's all this covering, uncovering. She's changing clothes. And she's doing these things. And people say, hey, that's, uh, that's Ruth. That's Ruth. You guys buying that? You buying that story? We've got to take the text like it says. What does it say? There's nothing being uncovered but somebody's feet. Yes, it's dark. 
but there's also many people around. It's a threshing floor. It's not just Boaz sleeping. All the men who have been working with him are sleeping there. And you can probably imagine the women also that were following behind. The wives of these men are working too. And then maybe even children are there with them. And they probably have a whole camp set up around the threshing floor. So it's not just them too, first of all. Secondly, there's no, there's nothing about sexual immorality anywhere in the book of Ruth. Uh, there's pe- people making dumb decisions, but we don't see anything about sexual immorality. And then we see in 3.11, what is she called? We already saw that she's a woman of excellence. But in, in 3.11... Um, now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you're a woman of excellence. So that, that could also be translating virtuous woman. Virtuous woman. So she's virtuous. She's, she's following God. There's nothing here in this book that would tell us that she's going to do that. So I, I think that's just reading stuff in. It's like reading a gay relationship into Jonathan and David's friendship. The modern mind is depraved. The unbelieving modern mind is very depraved. Ancient mind was very depraved as well, but the modern mind wants to read things back into the Bible that are not there. They want to take what's flagrant in our society today and assume that it's there in the ancient world. They were even more careful to make sure, even the pagans of ancient times were more careful than our modern uh, Western culture is on sexuality. And then, of course, Israel was super cautious because they knew what God had said about that. So I'm going with B. Hopefully you figured that out a long time ago. But uh, Ruth's character is called Virtuous. Nothing happened. That was immoral. They got married. They had children. They did it according to the godly way. What kind of marriage is this, though? Is this a Leverite marriage? So go back to Ruth 4.8. So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. We got this sandal event going on. And that seems to be a custom going on in Ruth. But some would say it's a Leverite marriage. Deuteronomy 25. So Moses talks about what's going to happen if a woman gets married, her husband dies before she has any children. What are we to do? How do we carry on that that man's family line so that he can inherit the land that God gave his, his tribe, his people? So Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. So her husband dies. You don't don't marry her outside the family because now we're going to have, in Israel, we're going to have mixed up family lines. Who gets the land? You know, who gets the land? You've got got a thousand acres, very very rich farmland, and uh, you die. Now your wife has it. But really, she can't have it in Israel. It's got to be inherited by a man. So whoever she remarries is going to have the land. What do they do? Who's going to raise up offspring? It says her brother, her husband's brother, shall go into her. It means get married, uh, do the things that married people do, take her to himself as a wife, perform the duty of a husband, husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn, whom she bears, shall assume the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and take, pull off his sandal off his foot, spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. So if, if the brother doesn't want to marry his deceased brother's wife, then he's going to be spit upon. There's going to be this sandal stuff going on. And he's almost an outcast, really. Is, is that what we're seeing with the sandal? happening is this a leverite marriage issue does does boaz think he's got to marry his his kinsman's wife or is it not anything like that at all and i would say it's not anything like that we got to be careful making connections in the bible just because there's a sandal here and a sandal there does not make the two the same there's a lot of sandals in the bible people wearing sandals shake the dust off your sandals it's not the way we interpret the bible 
That's not the way we interpret the Bible. That's, that's the way some people have done it. That's the way they did it in the Middle Ages and came up with all kinds of weird views. Oh, you've got this thing here. You've got this thing here. They must be talking about the same. Let's connect them up. Uh, why, why isn't this a Leverite marriage? Well, first of all, Boaz is not Malon's brother. It's not Ruth's uh, former husband's brother. So that doesn't work. It's a kinsman. We don't even know how far away they are, how many cousin levels that they are. Um, secondly, Ruth did not go to the city gate. She didn't go up to the gate and accuse anyone of anything. Ruth did not pull off the shoe. She did not spit in the face. Nobody spit in anybody's face. And in 4.8, let's go back to Ruth 4.8. It tells us about the shoe custom going on in Ruth. And it's not even known anymore. It's got to be told again. So 4.8, uh, so the closest relative to Boaz uh, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. So that whole thing has to be uh, described because it's not known. He, the writer of Ruth doesn't say, well, it's just like the Levite marriage. That's what happened. No, it's some, some sort of custom they did in that day dealing with the shoe. So it just doesn't work. So I'm going with B, last one on Ruth. This is an interesting one. Deuteronomy 23, 3-6. We keep going back to Deuteronomy. Remember what I said about Deuteronomy. The rest of the Old Testament is going to point back to Deuteronomy. Now, not necessarily Ruth here is pointing, uh, the book of Ruth is not pointing back on this instance, I don't think, but Deuteronomy just keeps coming up because it's where Moses laid out the law. And so we have to ask, did, did something happen here where uh, God made an exception for Ruth? What, what's going on here? Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite. Who's a Moabite? One of the main characters of the story. The book's named after her. Ruth. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. What's the assembly of the Lord? Is that talking about the temple? They certainly couldn't go into the temple. They certainly, a woman couldn't even go that far into the temple, but certainly a Moabite can't go into the temple. The assembly of the Lord is the congregation, God's people. There's no Moabite coming in to the assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. So the Ammonites and Moabites said, get away. We're not giving you any help. Go around us. Get out of here. And God's going to punish them for that. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor. They also hired Balaam to trip them up, to curse them. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. So the Ammonites and, and Moabites, they're, they're sort of somewhat closely related. They're not complete Canaanites. They're not as far off as the Philistines, for example. The Moabites have some relation. But God says, because of what they did, they cannot come in and live among you. So what's the problem? Well, here's Ruth. She comes in with Naomi. She gets married to Boaz. She's in the line of David. She's in the line of Jesus. What are we going to do with that? So here's our options. She's of the 11th generation because God said the 10th generation and she must be the 11th. What do you guys think on that one? That's very convenient, right? It doesn't really work because we don't even know what generation she is. And it's God talking here about from the time they came out of Egypt. Uh, you know, who, who knows exactly if she's the 11th generation and what the time frame is. I'm not going to go with that. Uh, Ruth was considered a worshiper of Yahweh. So she's a worshiper of Yahweh. That's, that's a decent one. I mean, she converted to worship the true God. I think B would be an option. We saw that in the chapter 1. She's a follower of the true God. So therefore, that's the exception. See, Ruth was an exception because of her devotion to Yahweh and worthy character. So uh, B and, and C are kind of similar one is more focused on worship, and one is more focused on her character. But nobody gets in by their character. Nobody um, earns anything with God by their good deeds. So I'm, I'm going to cancel that one out. So I'm, I'm going to take A out. I'm going to take C out. And then D, Ruth received Yahweh's grace. Anybody want to argue for B or D? They're both good. Godly men choose B. Other godly men choose D. Um, I'm going to go with D because of Romans 59 and just, just a general 
um, theme of Ruth. It's about God's sovereignty, about God's grace. Uh, let's look at Romans 59. It's quoting the Old Testament. I forget exactly what Old Testament verse. I think it's David in the Psalms and in Second Samuel. So David says this, and then Paul quotes it in Romans. And he's talking about the Gentiles. But, you know, B is not a bad answer. These aren't set in stone, you know. And in seminary, we go through these. And there's different options, and people just, you know, sometimes the professor picks two or three different answers. All right, uh, 15.9. Paul's talking to the Gentiles in Rome, and he quotes, For the Gentiles to glorify God, so this is part of, of Christ's coming, for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give, you pra- I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. So this is just part of God's plan. Whenever he says they shall not come in, I believe that he's talking about they shouldn't just let these people come in. No big deal. You know, come on in, Moabites. You want to live over here and make a city? Uh, Come on in, Ammonites. You want to take this territory here? We're, We're all at peace. No, I think they recognize with Ruth that she had received God's grace. And they weren't kicking her out or stoning her. It could be that they heard about that she worshipped God. Uh, It doesn't really tell us that Boaz knew yet, before he married her, that she was a worshipper of God. But he does know about her excellent um, moral excellence. But that's Boaz. Not that she could earn anything with God through that moral excellence. So I'm going with God's grace, but I think B and D are very similar, very close. Any questions on Ruth? It's a good book. If you haven't read it in a while, you should go read it. You could read it probably less than an hour. Uh, It really is about God's sovereignty and bringing these people together. And from that, you see Christ coming through that line in the future. A pagan Moabites gets saved, brought into the land of Israel where no Moabite should be, believes in God, of course, when she's saved, marries Boaz, and then ends up being in the line of Jesus Christ. That's God's grace. That's amazing. That goes perfect with the sermon today about the difference between Jew and Gentile that Paul's going to bring up in Ephesians 2. Well, let's pray. If you have any questions about what I've covered today, please come up and ask me any questions about what I've covered in the previous classes. If you need handouts, there should be some in the back. Anytime we have extras, I put them or have somebody put them back there. You come in one week and you missed, just look back there. If there's not extras, then see uh, Forrest, and he has an electronic copy. Lord, we give uh, you praise. We give you thanks for your grace. You are you're an amazing, sovereign God. We know things don't just happen. You, you cause them to happen. You're the ultimate cause of all things. Now, Paul tells us in, in Romans 8, God, in your word, that all things happen for good, for those who believe you, for those who trust in Christ, for those who follow Jesus. And we're just thankful that sometimes we don't even realize that you're working in our life like you did with with Ruth, with Naomi, with Boaz. And you're doing it for a purpose. You're doing it for a reason. So we give you all the praise and all the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.